the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Tonight, as uh, for the last several months, we're talking about COVID-19. And uh, we always try to feature someone different who's going to show us and talk about a different aspect of COVID-19. Tonight, we have a hospitalist. That's a physician who... The main job is to be in the hospital all the time and to watch the patients and to see what's going on and to recommend uh, orders and changes uh, in treatment. With that, we have uh, Dr. Nate uh, Odoricio. Uh, Dr. Odoricio, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you. Now, uh, I want to make it clear you're from a medical center in central Ohio, and you're speaking tonight really based upon your experiences as a hospitalist uh, dealing with COVID patients, among dealing with patients generally who are having other things going on in addition to COVID-19. But did I describe what a hospitalist does? Did I describe that okay? Yes, I think I think that's, uh, you know, we try to make it more complicated than it is, but at the end of the day... Uh, we are the physicians that take care of patients while they're in the hospital. Um, the hospitalist uh, has been around, as we know it, for about 30 years. But uh, I think since the advent of hospitals, uh, however many years ago, there there has been someone like us just not termed a hospitalist. Uh, and it came out uh, pretty much in the late 90s where we started to have physicians dedicated to the care of patients while they're in the hospital uh, specifically. And so, yes, that, that is, is a great description. Well, well, good, good. Uh, and a question I have, is that the same thing as an attending physician or the admitting doctor or are these terminology, these terms that are used may be confusing to patients? I think, uh, I, I think that's a great question. And um, Oftentimes, they're all interchangeable. So as the hospitalist, I would be called the attending physician. Uh, I would be the uh, physician who uh, rounds on the person every day, is there to answer calls, uh, talk to the families, um, uh, answer questions. And so that would be the attending physician. The um, Depending on the model that people practice in, they might have somebody who admits them. That would be your the term that you use, which would be the admitting physician. But a lot of times um, we will admit and then continue to take care of the patient for their, uh, you know, three, four, five days, however long they're in the hospital. Uh, certainly, if it is uh, a prolonged hospital stay, we would uh, transfer to one of our partners. If, you know, if we were going away or, or had uh, other things to do professionally, we would then have one of our partners take over their care who would then become the admitting or the attending physician, if you will. Uh, so yes, those terms are often interchangeable, uh, synonyms, if you will, um, and all basically I describe the same thing with a different word. 
When when you see patients and you see them heading down one direction with a cardiac problem, you're right there to call in a cardiologist as necessary or call in a neurologist depending on the situation, which uh, is, is a lot better waiting until Monday morning when someone may call for one of these doctors. So there's a more immediate response, I would think, by having a hospitalist around, I, I would think. In a, in, that's one of the things that we like to, you know, we like to think and, and offer the patients as we're there, we're, we're seeing them every day, we're talking to the patient, uh, the families multiple times a day, the nurses, and so we have the ability, if things uh, change, to, to rapidly change with them, uh, and whether that uh, means asking one of our colleagues to come in who, who, in their area of expertise like cardiology or neurology, uh, we're certainly uh, right there in, in uh, doing that actively. Now, in in our life's experience, and I'm sure that's for most, if not all, of our listeners, uh, the COVID-19 is the most uh, remarkable, uh, somewhat horrific public health problem we have ever witnessed in our lifetime. And your experience has been to actually deal with COVID people coming into your your hospital. When uh, you saw this starting to happen back in March, uh, when you would evaluate people and you would take care of them, what kind of problems did you see then uh, when people were coming in? And has that changed any now that we know a lot, we know some amount uh, of new information about COVID-19? Have things changed much? You know, I I think uh, our knowledge has certainly changed. Um, To some degree, we're still uh, very much, in terms of my practice, back to the basics. When people come in, um, it it becomes an issue of why do they need to be in the hospital um, versus can they do this at home safely. Uh, And so a lot of that has, um, we were able to diagnose it now. We, We do have the testing. Um, uh, to say, yes, this is what you have versus some other uh, either bacterial illness or some other viral illness. Uh, but that that kind of branch point in the beginning, um, really in my experience, hasn't changed much in terms of uh, what what requires them to have to stay, have to you know leave their life uh, in the outpatient setting or in the back home to come into the hospital to need that uh, um, level of care, if you will. And so a lot of that, I think, to your, to your question, is um, what, what I see the most is people come in and are short of breath or they're having trouble breathing uh, and with oxygen. Um, and that seems to be the biggest thing that uh, brings them into the hospital and, and gets them to stay with us for a couple of days. And then we have the whole host of things that people read about or hear about or that we've seen in the um, the press, if you will, um, that could be complications of it. As a simple person and as a basic person, a lot of times the branch point is, are they able to breathe uh, and to to function okay? And are they able to eat and drink? And those seem to be the biggest simple questions that when they come into the emergency room then lead us to say, okay, they need to stay for closer monitoring and support uh, from there. The people who come into the emergency room, 
because they believe they have COVID-19. Do you know any of the statistics as to how many of those people are reporting with symptoms that end up being hospitalized? Is that a large number or is it relatively rare or somewhat in between? You know, I think that's a that's a great question, and that is not a uh, that's a, not a number I've I've seen shared at our institution. Um, I will tell you, my experience is the emergency room uh, has done uh, really a uh, fantastic job of uh, trying to um, triage people or or to help decide who really needs to stay and who really needs to go. Uh, basically. Part of that is uh, bringing people into the hospital setting where they could then transmit to other people uh, if they don't need it, that don't have COVID but are being hospitalized for another reason. Um, So the answer is I don't have a true number. I have not seen that statistic. My experience is that uh, we're seeing people hospitalized uh, in its I, I don't question why they're being hospitalized. It's actually very clear to me what they need that they cannot get at home, whether that's oxygen, whether that's uh, intravenous uh, fluids for support, or they're not able to eat or drink, and they need to be supported through that. And so uh, from the total numbers, I can't tell you. My experience would tell me that uh, the emergency room and the doctors in the community are doing a, a, a wonderful job of saying, we can do this without you being hospitalized. And so I would say it is certainly not the majority of people that present, um, but it is certainly as you know, kind of that famous double negative. It's not uncommon, but it's certainly mm-hmm. something that um, uh, they're doing a good job of trying to determine, you know, the risks, benefits of being hospitalized versus being able to stay at home. And I think they've done a very good job. So I, I can't give you a number, but I would tell you that it's the lower side of everybody that we see. Uh, but it's certainly enough that it's caused a change in our uh, pattern. When someone uh, is in the emergency room and they're referred over to be hospitalized and to be admitted as a patient, uh, is this one of the things that most patients realize that, yes, I do need to be in a hospital? This isn't uh, something that they're shocked with, are they? You know, uh, it, it, that's a great question, and, and sometimes people uh, – are otherwise doing very well and they don't understand why they're being asked to be hospitalized until you know we we uh, are able to explain your the amount of oxygen your body's getting how you're breathing um, while it might not seem uh, to be causing you problems is a problem and will cause you a problem in a couple of days if we don't help to support you through it now Um, So sometimes it does come as a surprise to patients uh, because they don't realize that um, their body is not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, For Uh the greater majority of people, they have come to seek help, so they realize that they need help. And so they're um, not, nobody's really happy to be hospitalized. Don't don't get me wrong on that. Uh, But I think they understand the need to say uh, why we monitor and and do what we can to support them through. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure they do. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Nate uh, Odoricio, uh, who is a hospitalist in central Ohio at a uh, medical center. We're talking about COVID-19 and what happens when you go to the hospital. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. 
advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Dr. Nate uh, Ordoricio. He's a hospitalist down in central Ohio at one of the large medical centers down there. And we're talking about what happens if you do have to be hospitalized and you uh, have COVID-19 and what that's like and what you can anticipate. So, Dr. Uh, Ordoricio, thank you for joining us again. Well, thank you, uh for, for having me, and uh, I'm happy to uh, to speak with you as as we go through this all together. Yeah, I think so. I, I think this is very helpful in letting people know what they can expect when they go into a hospital. Uh, during the last segment, we were talking in terms of uh, some people being somewhat surprised that they're going to be hospitalized, but based upon what you understand the course of COVID infection will be, that I think you determine a couple of days they're going to need this hospitalization unless you intervene. Um, now, what what are some of the symptoms that you would look for that you know is going to be a problem for these people in a couple of days? And I think we were talking about difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, which suggests something about not getting enough oxygen in the blood. What, what do you look for with regard to the oxygen saturation in blood when someone comes in? In, and I, I think that that, um, that is typically what surprises people the most is uh, normally uh, the number, uh, if you will, when we go to check somebody's uh, how much oxygen that they're getting through their uh, their blood or in their system, we, we like to see somewhere above 92. Uh, people like to see 100, but that doesn't really make 100% doesn't really make much of a difference to us as we go about our everyday uh, business as opposed to anything, you know, greater than 92. That's all within what we call the normal range. Um, what we see is as people come in, if that number starts to fall lower, uh, say 90 or 88%, uh, that's how much uh, the body is uh, has oxygen to supply for the muscles and, and everything that we do daily. And I think that's what really surprises people when they see that number. They might be breathing a little faster than normal, but not really understand or, or even know that they are because their body is able to, that's their body's way of trying to compensate or to get over this. And what we know is that for most adults, as you do this, uh, you start to get tired. Um, maybe not in an hour, maybe not in two hours, but over the course of several days, your body would start to get tired and that would lead to more changes and, and harder time breathing. And that's where we say um, we probably should help support you through this as, as you get through this in a couple of days. It can be, um, you know, as long as five days or seven days, uh, depending on the course of their illness that they see. Uh, but that seems to be the biggest one that I've seen that uh, really kind of stops all the discussion and says, let's keep you until we can get you to the point where we can support you through this. In, in case it heads south, um, I'm thinking Correct. as I'm, I'm just jotting down some notes as I'm listening to you, and uh, I would think somebody going to the uh, 
emergency department uh, at their local hospital and, and they're experiencing shortness of breath, they're concerned that they have uh, COVID-19. Uh, I would assume that they'd be tested for COVID-19 at the hospital. If they tested positive, had shortness of breath, had a fever of over 100.4 or even over 100, and they had uh, an oxygen level below 90, uh, and, and the recommendation would be they should be hospitalized. Whether or not they're shocked about that or not, they're going to be hospitalized. What, what can they expect as far as treatment initially if those are the only symptoms they're showing? And, and that's, again, a wonderful question. I think as people come into the hospital, the one thing um, that we like to say is, or that I like to say is, uh, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can uh, to uh, make this boring for you. Right, because I don't want to do uh, yeah. a lot of testing to them. I don't want them to have to go through a lot of things. And and really, what I'm going to do is offer them oxygen. Uh, I'm going to offer them uh, support, uh, whether you know, see if they're able to eat and drink enough um, as their oxygen comes up. And then, as we first come into the hospital, as patients first come in, we certainly want to make sure we're not missing something else. Uh, and so that's where kind of the chest X-ray comes in. Um, maybe uh, take a look at the heart, whether it's an EKG, um, where we put the leads on the chest to see what the electrical activity of the heart is. Some of these patients might also get uh, what we call a echocardiogram or an ultrasound of the heart to make sure that that function uh, is good, just based on. Um, the fact that they're having low oxygen. So we kind of want to make sure we go through the other things that it could be because COVID, while it is certainly in our um, society right now, um, other common uh, diseases and things that can cause these same set of symptoms are still common. And so we, we also want to make sure we don't miss those uh, as we just place patients on oxygen and monitor them. So mm -hmm. as they first come into the hospital, I think one of the things we offer them is oxygen. So hopefully they can start to breathe a little easier. Their oxygen comes up. Uh, and then we also want to look at the laboratory evaluations. They'll probably have some blood drawn in the emergency room, uh, a chest X-ray. And then depending on how that uh, goes, what those show and how the patient's feeling, then we may undergo some uh, more testing to make sure we're not missing something, but otherwise we like to make it kind of boring and let their body uh, heal the best it can. I, I like that term boring because nothing better in medicine than to have a boring course that uh, will have a good outcome because it is so boring and non-dramatic. Uh, I like that very much because I'm thinking of myself being a patient. If my doctor says, go to the emergency room, I do, and they, they do say, at the emergency room, you're going to be admitted, and then I'm, I'm hearing what is going to be done. From me, from a patient's standpoint, I'm going to be scared out of my wits. I'm going to be frightened from all of the stories I've heard of being on a ventilator, of having my lungs ravaged, about having coagulation problems, uh, about uh, being put on a ventilator. How prevalent are all those dramatic uh, treatments uh, when, when you see people coming in, is it like one out of every two is going to end up in the ICU, or is it more rare than that? No, I, I think it. I think it's certainly. Um, my experience is it's certainly not that. Uh, it's not as common. I think 
as, as uh, what we uh, would come to think about based on what we hear. So the majority of patients that come into the hospital, I would say, uh, again, off uh, not seeing any studies that have looked at true numbers is, you know, less than one in four or one in five will, will go on to be in the intensive care unit. Um, uh, and require that level of of care. I think uh, if I go back to the spring when we had our biggest uh, peak uh, of it, um, we had about uh, a third of the population that was COVID positive in the hospital was in the intensive care unit at that time, and that was at the peak. Right now, um, we're still at about 20 to 25 percent would be in the ICU, but that in and of itself does not mean that they're all intubated. Uh, so uh, they might be just getting um, higher uh, levels of oxygen than what we can do just out on the regular medical floors. So uh, yes, uh, I can certainly understand when people come in and they think they're, you know, here they're being hospitalized for COVID, uh, my experience would tell me that it's still the minority of patients that go on to have uh, what we hear about and what we fear the most. And that's why we try to support the body so the body's not doing extra work um, to do two things at once. One, you know, uh -huh, keep uh -huh. the normal everyday functions of the body going at the same time of trying to fight the virus. And as we support the body through it, with oxygen, with uh, uh, fluids uh, through the through the vein, if they're not eating and drinking, that allows the body to to rest as it as it goes to fight the virus. Yeah, we have about uh, oh about thirty seconds left here. I was just wondering, real quick, someone coming in with one of the majority versions of COVID nineteen, about how long will they be in the hospital? Are we talking about a few days or a few weeks? So I know there's a variant depending on the patient, but there is a variant, and and I would say that when people get uh, the the sick patients with COVID tend to be in the hospital some somewhere on 10 to 12 days. Uh, by the time they come in, uh, we get them through the part, uh, you know, in the intensive care unit, and then they start to convalesce. Uh, that's typically been about 10 to uh, 12 days. So we say on average about two weeks. Uh, knowing then that they need another week or two to recover once they leave the hospital. So that's going to be about a month. So, well, the best thing to do is just follow the, uh, the, the public health recommendations. Wash your hands, wear a mask, be very careful, don't get too close to large groups and those kinds of things. So, Dr. Uh, Nate uh, Odoricio, thank you so much for uh, letting us know what we can expect if we have to go to the hospital with COVID-19. Well, I certainly appreciate the opportunity and your time, and, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing what you do, too. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, in our final two segments tonight, we're going to be talking to returning guest Dr. Daniel Magus about COVID-19, which has been our subject every week now since March. Uh, Dr. Magus, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back. It is. This uh, pandemic just seems to go on and on. We're now at the uh, end of uh, August or early September coming up. And um, the, the virus really hasn't changed. Just how we've been handling it and the numbers have been changing. What, what have you been finding out over the last couple of weeks? Well, uh, we're uh, up to 24 million worldwide, 5.9 million cases in the U.S., and Ohio's up to 118,000 with 14 with 4,076 deaths as a couple days ago. After a week or two of decreasing numbers, suddenly they went up again. Um, the statistics today show that in the last 24 hours they recorded 1,296 new cases, 29 new deaths. And although we're trying to open some of the schools and some of the businesses, we've already gotten uh, from Terry Allen notice that in the suburbs, 19 students and four faculty have already been uh, um, uh, tested positive for COVID-19, all related to sports activities. So it's a challenging time, and um, it's a little bit of um, guesswork. We don't have real good models to guide us in, uh, in where to go. You know, the, the numbers are constantly coming in in the hundreds and in, in the low thousands, it seems. And it, it seems that even in the best of times, we knock those numbers down, but we only suppress the the frequency of the spread uh, a little bit, and then it goes up again. Have things changed with regard to the lethality of the virus or uh, how frequently people get very seriously well, ill? Well, uh, you know, the mortality rates around 1% in the U.S., and um, it's still the transmission rate still somewhere between 2 and, and 3, uh, meaning that each individual who's infected has a tendency to infect either 2 or 3 people, and the average 2.5, and that's pretty much a, a common number through, uh, throughout the world. Um, uh, the, the, the virus isn't any more lethal or less lethal, um, but the, there is some treatment for it, particularly if you're seriously ill. Nothing much in the if you're mild or that nothing that can uh, prevent it. But if you're sick in the hospital and you're on oxygen therapy uh, without a respirator, if you're on nedridendesimir, um, you're less likely to need the respirator, and you'll get better faster. If you're sick enough to require oxygenation and a respirator, the dexamethasone has a dramatic decrease because of the people who are that sick usually have a very pronounced uh, increase in that cytokine reaction, inflammatory reaction. Um, it's an exaggerated response, which is probably genetically induced by the individual patient themselves. Um, it, if the patient lies prone, we now know they oxygenate better with or without the uh, respirator. Um, so there are some things we could do. There's some evidence that even colchicine, uh, the gout medication, the Greek study showed that maybe it has some benefits. I haven't seen the results of the very large study that the uh, Canadians are running. Um, they're hoping to find out that it's uh, useful. Um, I heard one doctor on the Internet uh, claim that he's already using it for some of his patients. The other thing that is very, very helpful is that people who are very, very sick with the multi-inflammatory condition uh, and intensive care uh, have, all have a vasculitis, and um, that means the vessels are clotting up. 
they're inflamed and clotting up both the arteries and the veins, sometimes the small vessels, even the large vessels, causing huge blood clots and pulmonary embolisms, which can be fatal, blood clots that break loose and get in the lungs. Using heparin um, in these patients who are seriously ill has been dramatically um, has dramatically improved the mortality and the survival situation. So um, if you're seriously ill and in the hospital in intensive care, there are some things that can be done now that we didn't have three and four or five months ago. So that's good news. However, uh, because treatment is kind of limited, especially for the mild diseases, we're kind of stuck with uh, vaccinations and mitigating this through public health measures. Um, what I'd like to talk to you a little bit is about the vaccine situation, because um, there's a, there's at least 120 manufacturers throughout the world who are producing vaccines, and the and uh, in, in the U.S. the FDA has um, uh, S5 has um, uh, approved five for phase two and three studies. Uh, one of them is Moderna. One is the um, the Pfizer. Uh, Moderna's already got a study going on here in people in the Cleveland area. Both the university hospitals and the VA are looking for candidates for uh, to test this uh, the uh, the uh, messenger RNA vaccine that's being produced by Pfizer in conjunction with a German firm BioNTech. So um, those are two promising um, right there. The other three use some kind of a, a very odd vector, a virus vector that's introduced to the cells to produce uh, the antigen and the immune response. Uh, they're all very new. All these are very new. That one vector-induced um, vaccine was used in the Ebola outbreak back in 2016, and the vaccine was available in 2018 in Central Africa and was very effective. Uh, this messenger RNA that Moderna and Pfizer are working on, they both have a very similar platform and mechanism to produce it, um, has been uh, shown in adults to have show uh, 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 a very uh, a definite immune response in phase one reactions. And in rhesus monkeys has shown to prevent infection with COVID-19 very effectively. And the rhesus monkey model has been very um, useful and very predictive and accurate in predicting vaccine responses in healthy adults when they get them. So that's all good news. Um, we're, uh, we're the large... Uh, both the, UA, uh, the VA and the University of Hospitals are recruiting large amounts of people, and uh, uh, hopefully by the end of this year, this, early next year, we'll have a vaccine available. So, um, so wow. we're, we're, things are well, moving that, that well is, in that regard. That is all good news. A uh, question with regard to the the studies you're talking about: uh, with some of these studies, even though the studies have to run their full course through the prescribed protocols for running those studies. Are there any initial responses that they're seeing uh, in, the, in the phase three studies? Nothing as to yet. Whether they're or just not... still recruiting. So they're still recruiting, but the they don't have the everyone identified yet. Are, right now they're recruiting, and uh, the only thing I know is the next, uh, the neighbor across the street's involved in the Moderna study. Two weeks ago he got his first shot. He said his arm hurt for three days, so he thinks he got the real shot. What they're doing is they got a placebo arm. Uh, half the patients get a uh, saline injection, the other half get the real vaccine. So they're tech checking, number one, the level of antibodies, are these neutralizing antibodies, and then um, they, they'll check to see uh, in, in 30,000 people you'll have a good idea what's the infection rate. 
uh, versus those treated and those not treated, those vaccinated and non-vaccinated. The only downside is uh, if you're in the study, you may be in the placebo arm and not get it after all. Uh, everything points to the fact that they're fairly safe at the doses that they're using, and um, uh, uh, but we, we only have preliminary results on the phase one studies only. I would assume that the people that are, are being brought into the study uh, are coming from all different sectors. So you're going to have males and females. You're going to have young and old. You're going to have people with underlying conditions and not. Uh, very absolutely, so very absolutely different that. races and different communities. Um, they're, they're doing a large demographic difference. So you can see pregnancy, non-pregnant, uh, male, female, uh, young, the child uh, under the age of 18, over 18, over the age of 65, those uh, with heart disease, those with the comorbidities, those without, those who are overweight, those who aren't. And all those, um, uh, all those numbers and all that data can be extrapolated and find out, does it work? And if it works, who does it work in? Does it work in everybody? And how well does it work? So, Well, that's, that's, uh, that's good to know because we want to watch all of that carefully, questioning already whether or not when a vaccine is out and ready to be distributed, whether people are actually going to go out and take the vaccine, whether there's, the vaccine will be safe, proven safe. So all of the study information should be available so people yeah. can decide for themselves, I would assume. It, it's extremely important that uh, it not only is effective, is that it is safe. And that's why uh, huge numbers of people in the phase three studies have to um, be included. And you have to study them very carefully. Uh, you can't just rush out and say, okay, it seems to be working, let's give mass uh, um, vaccinations. Uh, to get people to do this, you've got to assure them that it's safe and that you've got to be very transparent with what kind of reaction. If you're going to have a sore arm, you've got to tell them. You're going to, you're going to have a sore arm for three days. Uh, well, that's, the that's estimates true. are 75, somewhere around 60 65% of people, at least 65%, have to be immune to have any herd immunity. So at least two-thirds of the country has got to be willing to undergo this, and you have to have very, very um, uh, transparent safety um, data uh, to show them and to convince them that it's a oh, good, good, good. vaccination. Well, let's take a short break right now. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus about COVID-19 and vaccines and how it's going to be tested before we have to take it. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Back, Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus about COVID-19, a returning guest and physician, to talk to us about what has been coming up with regard to COVID-19 and uh, how we're doing here at the end of August in the year 2020. Uh, Dr. Magus, again, thank you as always for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. You know, we're, we're talking about vaccines, and until the vaccines come out, uh, that that's a matter of, I suppose, just, uh, I guess, announcements and public rumor that uh, by the end of the year or early next year, we should be seeing some vaccines. But in the meantime, that, vac that um, virus is still out there, and we're starting school. Uh, we're starting school with high school sports uh, in, in most of the schools and sort of a mixed bag of uh, actually having virtual 
school classes versus live classes. Private schools seem to be having more uh, people come in live. Uh, what, what can we watch for as the schools are becoming reengaged? Some well, in person, it's a very some virtual. Some. It's a very difficult question of whether they should go back or not, or how, because we don't have any very good models to to predict that. And as you, you're aware, as you're aware of, uh, the models in the past have been conflicting, overlapping, sometimes dead wrong. Uh, a lot of people have very little confidence in the in the models, and uh, therefore sometimes little confidence in the uh, public figures that are recommending certain measures, uh, because we just don't have enough data. And the problem is the U.S. unfortunately has the highest number of deaths and the highest number of cases in the world. We were a little slow to start testing. We were slow to ramp up the testing. We just don't have enough testing data so that we can make accurate predictions on what's going to happen when we open things up and when we allow people to do more things in, in, in uh, group sessions. Um, you can't blame anybody. For, uh, the, the FDA first gave a test that weren't very effective, and they uh, were worried and they were afraid to uh, uh, recommend the WHO tests when they became affected, affect, uh, available, and then when the private companies started producing them, they weren't sure whether they were accurate enough to endorse them and to approve them. So testing still is somewhat behind the goals that we've had, uh, partially because of um, lack of supplies, lack of reagents, not enough uh, facilities to actually do the test, and the protective clothing, as you remember, during the uh, first three months of this was very, very short on hand, and people weren't around to actually do the testing uh, safely. So the the bottom line is we don't have good numbers um, to to predict what's going to happen. However, in the Cleveland and in this uh, northeast Ohio area, Cuyahoga County, we've got um, an interesting situation where the public schools are, are closed and the, the, the private schools are being open. So you've got an opportunity to do very careful uh, scientific data collection and making very good predictions on what works, what's not working, why it works, why it doesn't work, and what other um, uh, school systems can do in the meantime. Uh, so, but here's, but, but here's what we do know. Uh, mm -hmm. And here's what the uh, uh, officials and, and uh, school principals and superintendents uh, are faced with. It's conflicting information. First of all, the Georgia camp, uh, just north of um, uh, um, uh, Atlanta there, um, had this summer uh, uh, a, a staff member go home sick. Uh, over the next three days, 344 residents were tested, 75% positive for COVID-19 in this in this camp, this summer camp. Three days later, they closed it. 51% of all the kids that were involved in that entire camp tested positive, even the young kids uh, um, less than six years old and even six to 10 and over 10 years old. Uh, they all tested positive. So it does spread even among children. Uh, how, um, the contacts vary and transmissibility rate. Uh, household contacts seem to have the highest transmission rate. It's only 10% if you're careful. If you put the, if you put the sick person in, the, in one room and they have one bathroom and everyone stays away from them for six feet or more and everyone wears a mask, only 10% of people can get sick. It seems to be the highest. 
Um, in healthcare uh, facilities, it's where they have very um, good protective clothing. It's about one percent transmission rate, and public transportation is the lowest, believe it or not, about a tenth of a percent. So those are very good. Those are very good numbers. You can actually control this to some extent, even if it's present in your own household. The World Health Organization recommends kids under five not wear the mask, and that makes sense for developmental reasons. They can't do it. They can't tolerate it. It may be dangerous for them to even have it on. So um, that said, uh, children tend to have milder disease, but they still can they still can uh, transmit it, even if they're asymptomatic. And there was one. One study showed that they can even have a higher, even when their kids who are asymptomatic may have a higher viral RNA load than uh, than adults who are symptomatic. Now, that's confusing because it may not be infectious, but when you find out they have high levels of RNA, sometimes you got to be very, very concerned about it. What's the asymptomatic rate? We hear it's pretty high among the kids. And uh, one large study showed that it's anywhere from zero to two percent, and um, it averages about one percent. And those, and it seems to be directly related to the prevalence, the number of cases of COVID-19 in that community. So if you have a low number of cases, very few or almost none of your kids will have an asymptomatic infection. If you have a very high rate of um, a high incidence, a high prevalence of cases that are present at the time in your community, the asymptomatic rate may be as high as 2%. Still very low, but it's definitely dependent on the number of cases in the community. So when uh, Mayor DeWine comes on and says, do you want to open the schools? Wear your mask. He's right. If you lower the amount of cases in your community, you're going to lower the cases in the kids and the the asymptomatics, which are the most dangerous because you don't know they have it. Uh, if you don't wear your mask, if you're not distancing and you have a very high um, prevalence uh, of the disease in your community, you're going to have a higher rate of kids that are asymptomatic, and they'll spread it to other kids, and they'll spread it to the adults in their life. Uh, we know I have a, just, uh, just an observation to make your mentioning, knowing what's in your community. Uh, I just wanted to point out that Cuyahoga County uh, Board of Health, they do put out these statistics every week. And for months now, they've been putting out statistics showing uh, what range each community by zip code is with the number of cases. Mm -hmm. uh, but just this week, for the first time, they started to publish the exact number of cases per zip code. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening and you want to find out how many cases you have of coronavirus in your particular city, you can go to the Cuyahoga County Board of Health site and look and get that number. So that's that's a big development so that we have an idea of whether or not we have thousands of cases in our community or hundreds. Yeah. So you can now find out. But in any event, with, um, with, with the spread, you mentioned something also about uh, uh, public transportation being down. How safe is it to fly in airlines yet? And a lot of us have been putting off our travels that we need to do. Well, if they disinfect the planes real well, there's, there, there's very little problem as long as you're uh, not speaking. Uh, if you're uh, you're you're not spitting out virus, if you're wearing a mask and you're distanced from people uh, six feet, um, there's there's very little risk. Um, I understand American Airlines is using a new FDA approved uh, uh, sanitation that lasts one seven days. Uh, so I mean you, you you apply that and the and the plane's safe for seven days and you don't have to wait for them to uh, meticulously 
and sanitize each nook and cranny and hope they caught everything. Um, they, they, they can uh, spray this thing, and uh, um, it, it seems to work pretty well and is safe uh, and, and effective for seven whole days. So it sounds to me like the airlines are uh, probably safe, but where do you want to go? You, know, you want to go to Florida where there's a hot spot, California where there's a hot spot, New York where there was a hot spot. Um, you've got to be very, very you, – do you want to fly to Europe or uh, China or the, or the mid, Middle East, the you know, Far East? Um, where are you going to go? Um, you have to uh, – you have to be, oh, have be to aware know what, what the, the environment is going to be like when you get there. The we're, we're going to have to have you back another time, Dr. Magus, to give us yet another update. We'll have you back in about a month or so to uh, give us another update and see how this is changing after school's been in session for a while and we've been seeing how the numbers have been going. But uh, other than that, we're, we're all staying healthy for the most part. Keep washing our hands, wearing our masks, and um, staying distance. Is that still the right rule, you think? Oh, yes. They're right. And, and there are definitely guidelines for us distancing and wearing the mask uh, and, 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 and sanitizing the, uh, the school equipment and, uh, and washing hand, hand hygiene. Keep washing well, hands. Well, let's all, let's all know what those rules are and we'll play by them and, as long as we take. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Magus. And take care. Thank you, and thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea.